0: We've all heard the stories about sign language speaking great apes and problem solving dolphins. But which animal species exhibits statistical thinking and probability based inference? That is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is Richard Campbell, former chair of Miami's media, journalism, and film department. Rosemary Pennington is away today. Our guest on this episode is Amalia Bastosch. Bastos is a PhD candidate at the University of Auckland who has been working with animals to see how evolutionary pressures have shaped the minds of different species. She recently co-authored a paper describing experiments that demonstrate that a parrot, the New Zealand kia, is able to use data to make decisions. Amalia, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Amalia, what motivated you to study statistical inference in animals? (laughs) I mean, I think that I sort of study them in animals too, but they tend to be higher primates. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um but that's exactly why, right? So we know that um humans are very good at using probability and we also know that apes are good at using probability. What we didn't know is that birds might be able to do the same thing. Um but Kia show behaviors that suggest that they are very intelligent, so we want to see if they might be able to do the same um the same sort of um statistical thinking. And so this was the first time that it was applied to birds in the same way as it's been applied to humans How did you
2: how did you pick the Kia I only know Kia as a Scrabble word, so I'm <laughs> learning about. It's a good Scrabble word with K. So, but are other? Why not other parrots? Why I know parrots are smart generally, but why the Kia?
1: Um, I think parrots are smart generally. Um, the Kia happen to be the only truly omni uh, truly omnivorous parrots, so they're the only ones that will eat meat and oh. sort of hunt in some sense. So you probably know about them. Um, digging into the backs of sheep and eating the fat off the sheep's uh back no so i never heard that, that no. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the kia are famous for in new zealand okay. um, and until the 70s they were uh, mass like mass shot for it so the farmers would kill them they killed over 150,000 oh birds gosh. Um, oh, wow. yeah, because they, they would attack so the sheep. What, um, it's actually a minor that's like problem a fox yeah. <laughs> Problem
2: in this country, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, they don't do that much, but I mean, the yeah. farmers blew it out of proportion and killed a bunch of Kia. Um, but you know, there's, there's a hypothesis that, um, there's a theory that the more omnivorous, uh, the more omnivorous species might be smarter than, mm-hmm. um, specialists. So, you know, there's, there's some reason to believe that he are particularly smart, um, and another reason is that they live in large sort of groups. They have uh fish infusion dynamics. So, you know, there might be 50 birds and they come and go as they please. So they know all these other individuals as well. And, uh, yeah, the social brain hypothesis Dunbar they'd suggest that, um, intelligence evolves to keep up with this sort of, mm-hmm. uh, sort of complex social structure.
0: So, so how do you know if, if someone knows anything about statistical inference? How, how do you how do you even formulate the properties that that you investigate?
1: yeah, I mean the the fun thing is that with uh humans you can just ask them right but with with animals, you can't do that um so quite a bit of design comes into this, and we actually based a lot of our studies on uh what they've done with infants, so we know that pre verbal infants uh can do probability to some extent um and so we sort of adapted what they've done with infants to the birds, and what we do there is uh, give them two options to pick from so. With infants, they usually do a time looking paradigm, which is they will look for longer when they're surprised. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, infants will look for longer at events that surprise them, um, and once the, once they get a little bit older, and they can sort of crawl towards things. You can give them choices. So that's what we did with the birds. We had two sampling events they could pick from.
2: So at what point? Did you know that you had something really significant? And how did you know that?
1: Yeah. Um, To be honest, the probability itself wasn't that shocking to me that they could do Uh that. Um, I had sort of an expectation that they could do it to some extent. We didn't know that they would use um, statistical inference to do it. We thought maybe they would use simpler associative Mm -hmm. heuristics to do it. Um, It was surprising when they passed both conditions um, that are controls for these uh, heuristics. I think the most surprising thing, though, was when they started to integrate information. And um, yeah, the first time that a bird got the um, the social experiment right, then I rang up my supervisor and said, Alex, they just passed this. They're not supposed to pass this. And Alex was like, did you run everything correctly? And I was <laughs> like, yes. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. So how many birds were you working with?
1: Um, so we have 13 birds. Not all of them are cooperative, though, so we have two more dominant birds that don't want to do any work because they're too busy with their managing their social relationships. (laughs) Um, And we have a juvenile that doesn't know how to work yet. So we, by the time we finished all the training, which is quite intensive, we were down to six birds that, you know, would come down regularly enough to be tested.
2: And why is this significant with just six birds?
1: Now? Yeah, I mean, so what we did is sort of um, individual level analysis. Um, and so, you know, if, the, if that specific bird passes or not. And the reason for that is that we're more interested in capacity than average ability in, the, in our field, which is quite different from, you know, regular psychology. Mm-hmm. We're interested in proofs of concepts, like can an animal do this or not? Um, and like we don't we don't really care as much as psychologists if it's a, an average thing across all Kia or yeah. across all birds. It's more about do they have that ability.
0: I see, I see. So could you just, just sort of give a sketch of some of these these experiments that you conducted just to, to get yes. to paint that verbal picture for some of the listeners? And
2: explain, <laughs> explain token preference test. I think that's what you'll talk about here, right?
1: Yes. So we first trained them to prefer black tokens. So they would exchange, we, we taught them to exchange tokens, which means bringing them back to us and they will get a food reward if they bring the correct thing back. So
0: what motivates them? What, what kind of food motivates
1: them? Uh, cat food, actually. So if you So you're not yeah. using sheep. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Uh,
2: no. <laughs>
1: we have fed them uh, meat cubes and fat yes. cubes before, but <laughs> Um but yeah, if you if you just have cat food and you soak it over overnight, it just becomes a stodgy Mess okay. and they really like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll do quite a quite a fair bit of work for that actually. So um, they will bring back black tokens for it, but they know that if they bring back an orange token, they get nothing. Um. So that's the first very first step of training. Um. Having said that, was like four years ago I think that they were oh, trained to exchange yes. tokens. So it's a long process. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. And then we spent the next two years trying to figure out how to train them to understand hands. Because uh, to apes and to humans, hands are quite intuitive. You see someone moving something inside their hand, and you know that you know hands can grasp things, they can hide things. Um, with birds, it's not so obvious. So because you know they use their beaks, they don't really use their feet to like hide things. Um, and so that took us, I think, three different attempts or three different techniques to try and teach them how to understand that hands hold and carry things around. Once that was figured out. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, no, it's quite it's quite a long process. Um, but once they understood hands, they were really quite good at it. Um, and then we showed them sort of a setup where we have two jars on a wooden board mm-hmm. and there's a plexiglass be- between us and the birds. And the only reason for the plexiglass is so they don't start making choices before we've presented both options because they get very fidgety. Um, they're a bit like toddlers when you're working with them. Um, and so <laughs> we'd sample from one jar with one hand, present a closed fist, and from the other jar with the other hand, present another closed fist, and then we could either present them in parallel, so just bring them up over the plexiglass, or cross them over. And so the birds could track whether, you know, was the, the hand had crossed over and was presented in parallel, and the reason for that, is they wasn't weren't just picking the same size of the jar that they wanted. They weren't picking the jar, they were picking the sample. So that's the first step. Okay,
2: <laughs> and we should remind people, too, there's a really cool video where you can watch this. So. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, we we're definitely going to link this. this. Yeah, yeah. So we have to link it.
1: Cool. You have um. There's also our video which explains it in more scientific terms, step by step. So if you guys want to link that too, that's a more uh. It's just me rating through the steps as well. So.
0: Yeah, I I was I thought that was that was amazing in and of itself. But but then the physical divider and the second step and and recognizing that some didn't count. I mean, essentially yeah. discounting the things that were divided. And then the last bit where someone was was purposely sampling the black reward I that that must have blown your mind when you saw that
1: yeah it did I mean when when <laughs> when they started picking the uh bias sampler I was that, that's when I rang my supervisor he <laughs> didn't get it
0: <laughs> that that is that is just so cool I I can't imagine what what would be but what, what's was that the most that was the most surprising aspect of all that you had done you kind of, you were saying that you sort yeah. of expected the other pieces to come in
1: yeah, I mean, I expected the first experiment, which is just can of use probability, full stop. So I thought, you know, maybe they can do that. Um, the physical uh, constraints, we were like, oh, okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe you can. I mean, you do, you do figure out how to, you know, use uh, complex things in our experiments, and you've dealt with a bunch of different physical things, and you know, in the in the wild, there's some evidence that they might use tools. So that's not mega surprising. And then when they were actually reading cues from humans on whether humans are looking into a jar or not and whether humans might be biased or not, that was, that was very
0: surprising. I, I think I, I read it in one of the, the background pieces we had looked at that, that you were wearing mirrored sunglasses for that. I, <laughs> yes. You know, because I, when I first saw this, I was, I was thinking about, it, was, was it the, uh, the, the story of Clever Hans? the the horse that yeah. would count and it was that the story was ultimately that it was it was debunked because the the horse was picking up other cues
1: yeah so the horse was attending to breathing patterns and posture and stuff like that um so what we had i i actually couldn't test um for much of the experiment we had blind testers so basically volunteers um who were doing their honors thesis or they were visiting students and then they would they would conduct the tests i could train uh. but i couldn't I couldn't test because I knew what to expect.
0: Uh, So you were, that's, that's awesome. So you were, you were (laughs) definitely, definitely controlling for some of these uh, other, other kind of cues that you might be giving.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, I, I unblinded them at the end and they were very surprised by what the birds did, but they actually, at the time when the birds did it, they had no idea what was going on. So um, they weren't (laughs) as surprised as I was. I was just quietly trying to, you know, keep my enthusiasm down. So they wouldn't pick up on (laughs) the birds are doing something interesting.
2: How did, uh, I noticed I read the piece in Forbes and in The Guardian. So what's the process of getting those sort of general publications interested in this study? How did that happen?
1: Um, They actually contacted me, so it's a good question. Um, The university put out a press release, and Nature Commons put out a press release. And then people started emailing me and there was three or four days when most of what I did yes. was talking to the media. <laughs> so um, yeah, there was a lot of trying to be in at the key because we were still working with the Kia then. So I was going into the Avery, helping the volunteers, teaching the students, and then going, Okay, I'm just gonna nip to the back of the Avery for a cuz I need to take a phone call and then I was just um, trying to juggle the two things. But yeah, they they mostly contacted me.
2: And how did what did you think about their coverage, your their initial coverage? One of the things we ask guests a lot is what are journalists doing well and what they what can they do better. How did they represent your work?
1: I think they did quite well. I mean, the Guardian one is really good. Um, I think it's quite a difficult experiment to explain because it's three steps, yes. and you know there's quite a lot of uh, intricacy involved. But I think most journalists did actually really well. I think some of them got slightly caught up on the detail, but they, they did a really good job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask the very same question, Richard. That's a. I, I thought what from reading through it, I thought that they they seemed to cover the scientific paper pretty well. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like they captured the essence of it, and I I think they they loved having those pictures yeah. to be able to include mm. the <laughs> yeah you know, the, the 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 two conditions that were being selected. I had some trouble done.
1: with the with the pictures originally because um, the Nature Communications editor came back to me and said, "Do you have any pictures of the Kia, and can you sign a release?" And I was like. I do have pictures, but I can't sign a release for every single one of them because there are over 50. So you can go through the folder and pick what you think is good. So I just sent them a batch of photos to pick and sign <laughs> one release for all of them.
0: Well, that's that's that is awesome. I I uh, do do you think that this is going to be that you would see this in other bird species?
1: Um. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, other birds have complex social structures as well, and I I don't think the sort of omnivore diet is enough to to really you know generate this level of intelligence. So, I mean, birds like sulfur-crested cockatoos, African gray parrots, um, those birds with large brains and lots of neurons probably would be the next ones we would see this in.
2: We'll have to uh re-weight the term bird brain after all of your yes. words, right? <laughs> it changes, every, this changes everything.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Amalia Bastos, a researcher in the Animal Minds Lab at the University of Auckland. Amalia, you've worked with other species, including dogs and New Caledonian crows. What are some of the other kinds of research questions that, that you're exploring with these, with these other species?
1: Yeah, so um, with dogs who are very interested in domestication and social cognition because we think that their brains have been shaped to some extent by the fact that we keep them as pets and have done for, you know, thousands of years. So we have some interesting social experiments with the dogs. We had a paper come out recently showing that they yawn in response to people, but it's not, um, yeah, (laughs) Um, but it's not uh, sort of emotional contagion. It's not empathy in any way. So we don't, we don't know exactly why they yawn, but we've basically shown that uh, yawning is not an empathetic response, which a lot of psychologists had assumed that it was. and with pros it's mostly technical intelligence they have uh so far outsmarted me i haven't got a paper out of the pros yet but uh <laughs> we're interested in how they use tools and you know whether they can plan for the future and that that sort of general kind of thing
2: i have a question about a term that i came across that i'd like you to talk a little bit more about domain general thought yeah what is that
1: um so in Basically what we think is that bird we what we thought is that birds have very specific brains, evolved for very specific purposes, and they could do one very uh one very task specific thing at a time. But um if intelligence has evolved in a more general way, so that's what we call domain general, it means that different units of the mind can work together and integrate to solve a problem at the same time. So what we see is that the Kia they can use different types of information to solve mm-hmm. one problem. And they use those at the same time, you know, like they do in um, taking physical constraints into account in their probability, or taking social biases okay. into account as well. Um, so that's the first evidence uh, that we have of birds definitely using two types of um, intelligence, two types of knowledge at the same time for a single judgment, which suggests they have domain-general okay. intelligence.
0: So, so how old were the birds when when they were when you started training them?
1: Um. So when I started training for this experiment, or when I started working, with yes, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think they would have been, when they started doing token exchange, some of the birds were really young, so they would have been three or so years old, and that's um when they're effectively moving from being juveniles to becoming adults. Um, and the fun thing with is that you can always tell a juvenile because they have sort of. Yellow fleshy bits around their eyes and their beaks. Um, and so mm-hmm. when that yellow starts to disappear, they're sort of going through their teenage years. Um, and they are terrible <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> we got bitten a lot. Um, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but they do learn not to bite you after a while. Um, so yeah, most of them are between six and nine now. But we do have one 26 year old in the a3 oh, They wow. live quite a long time. I say,
2: is that the. Is that an old
0: age, 26, or
2: do they live even
0: older than that?
1: Yeah, they live up to 40, so that's just past middle-aged birds.
0: Oh. Did, did you see some of the, did some tend to, to learn faster than others?
1: Oh yeah, so um, two of our birds are what I consider the genius birds. So Loki and Taz, they tend to um, perform very well in every study. So it seems like, you know, it applies to different types of questions as well. Um, and other birds are, you know, more there for the participation points. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so my my favorite bird, uh, he's very sweet, called Blofeld, like the James Bond villain. <laughs> and uh, he's lovely, but he takes a long time to get things. Uh, and so, you know, he he comes down the platform, is very very willing to work, but has no idea what's going on for a long time. So.
0: <laughs> I I love the names that you've given these birds too. That's brilliant. <laughs> I, I was just curious, I, I mean, I was asking, I know that you have such, you have a few few birds and in some sense, as you've mentioned, you're doing proof of concept of if this is even possible within this species. And and I, it really does make me wonder about whether there were certain, you know, certain features that might be predictive of certain birds being more likely to learn. I mean, you know, that whether, you know, sort of in the future, you know, if you were going to place a bet as to, you know, could you guess if this bird was going to be a, certain characteristics that might predict a certain bird is likely to learn quite well? Do you have any yeah. insights on that or any speculation?
1: I mean, that's a good question. They all have very different um, personalities between the birds. So what, I, what I've learned from um, who does best is just from experience. So I've seen them perform well in other experiments. So I know that in the future they will do something similar. Um, but yeah, I think the two birds that are the best are also some of the boldest birds. So Loki, who is one of the best birds, is quite up there, the hierarchy, and he's quite um, energetic. So he's always displacing other birds and such. Maybe there's some suggestion that birds that are higher up in the hierarchy might be. Um, hmm, although Johnny, who is the the top dog, is is useless. So, I, yeah, I don't know. But
2: <laughs> this is just um, like
0: this is just like people.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard to say. Um, Says so the former department chair. That's right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so you have a former department chair and a current department chair, and you're saying, <laughs> yeah. so, so the the image of the, the you know the, the top dog being useless. I don't know, you know. That's yeah. Not...
1: yeah, no, he's retired for sure. He doesn't work with us. <laughs> uh, this, he's got better things to do. No. So <laughs> I
2: want to know how you got into this kind of work and what was the sort of. You're very young still, but what was the sort of the path to getting where you are today? And then, what do you want to do? Like, what's your What's your next study? What's the next thing you're really excited about?
1: Well, if we go back a long way, um, I grew up when, sort of with a mini zoo because I'd adopt animals um, left, right and center, mm-hmm. um, sometimes without my parents' permission. So one day I, asked, <laughs> I just rocked up with three massive tortoises to the house um, who were delivered in a van. So just so you get an idea of how big these things were. Um, and because my mom had agreed to some tortoises but she didn't know the size she just had to accept it um so i've always liked animals um i bred cockatiels which are little parrots when i was growing up um so i had quite close interaction with birds especially um and i always knew they were quite smart so from an early age i wanted to study animal intelligence um so i sort of i sort of had that in mind then um, so I went to Oxford to study biology and there I was mentored by Alex Kaselnik who is a big name in the field mm. um, and worked with cockatiels I'm um, sorry cockatoos at the Vienna lab so yeah got a grant to go study in Austria for a couple of months and worked with the birds and that sort of solidified that that that's the kind of thing that I that I really enjoy so yeah when I found a PhD to study with yeah, to study Kia I was I was on it.
2: <laughs> very good. Very good. So what do you want to what are you what are you excited about next?
1: Um sorry, yes, I forgot the second part of your question. Yes. Um <laughs> so we're interested in how we can integrate this with sort of um artificial intelligence next. We have yeah, we have some ideas about how we might collaborate with um a couple of artificial intelligence scientists because so far, um, the artificial general intelligence systems have been based on sort of human neuromechanisms. mechanisms. But because birds have simpler, in a way, mm-hmm. they have simpler brains, then this might also provide inspiration for systems that can do artificial general intelligence. So that would be the next big step. to but you know, that could be years and years and years. Um, on a more short term, <laughs> um, on a more short term basis, um, we want to test. Uh, if KIA can integrate sort of three types of information at the same time. So if they can do physical, social, and probability, we want to see how far they can, they can take the, mm-hmm. the ability.
2: So. Very good. Now, is this what you call, there was another term, pro-social behavior. How does an animal manifest that or do they?
1: So, we, yeah, pro-social behavior is sort of like when an animal yes. helps another one with no evidence of like self-interest in that sense. So we have a paper on KIA showing that they might be uh, able to act pro-socially, but our evidence isn't quite there yet. There's a really good study that came out, I think last year, um, showing that African gray parrots are pro-social. And what they do is they will sort of hand over a token to another bird, because they can't exchange it for food themselves. So they will pass it through a plexiglass Mm -hmm. wall, like a hole in a wall to the other bird, when they themselves can't exchange. Um,
0: Very interesting. didn't you you told a, a story in part of a of, of one of the kind of the lower hierarchy birds kind of sneaking up to slip you a to slip you a token for reward? Yeah. <laughs> so t- can you so, can you describe what happened there and what how you interpret that?
1: Yeah. So um, what happened is we were sort of teaching them in a group setting to exchange tokens, and what that means is we throw a bunch of black and orange tokens onto the floor, and we have the birds sort of go get them and run back to us. It's like playing fetch with a dog, really. Um, but you know some birds are more dominant to others, so they will bully others out of their black tokens and exchange it with us. And one of the birds called Neo, um, he is uh, less less than dominant bird. He's uh, towards the end of the um, hierarchy, and he had a black token. But instead of coming round to my to the front of me where he could see where I could see him, but he and he could exchange tokens. But other birds could see him as well. He perched on a rail behind me and poked me with a token on the back. And that's uh, sort of the first real sign of intelligence that i saw in these birds because it was early on in my time working with them and what it seemed to me is that he was aware that i couldn't see him and so not only was he avoiding the subordinate birds but indicating to me in another uh sort of you know way in, a, in a tech, like touch through touch rather than through visual cues that he was ready to exchange the token. so that was quite surprising
0: so you've you've been involved in doing this really cool science, and and you've also been involved in communicating this really cool science to in different venues. What what has helped you prepare to tell the story about the science that you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, practice. So <laughs> the first interview I had was not that great, but um, as you as you, which is funny because that's the one on the Nature Communications video. So that's probably why mm-hmm. they use two lines of it. Um, <laughs> um, but as you, as you do it more and more and you understand the kinds of questions and that, that, you know, people are asking you and the sorts of answers that they're looking for in the sense of how can you explain this in a way that's understandable to a lay audience, then, you know, that it, it sort of builds that skill.
0: You're very good at that. Yeah. You've, you've done, you've done great work. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, Amalia, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank
0: you. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or Apple Podcasts or other places you can find podcasts. To share your thoughts on the program, send your email to stories at miamioh.edu or check us out on statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.